I'm going to ask you to go to uh, the book of Exodus if you brought a Bible with you this morning. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. If you didn't bring one, the verses will be up on the screen as well. And there's Bibles around you in some of the chairs in front of you. You can follow along that way. But like I said, they'll be on the screen so you can follow along. Um, I've found where we're going with Exodus 20 this morning, obviously, is the Ten Commandments. It's a, a part B to where we were at last week in looking at the Ten Commandments. I've found that these commandments of God are a mirror on my life. And by that, I mean they reveal things about me. They reveal things about God. They show me who He is to me and who I am to Him. And this mirror is really going to get turned on like a spotlight this morning as we look at what God calls us to. I'm going to ask that you specifically would pray with me so that we would invite God to do in our life right now what He needs to do. Whether you're joining us online or you're in the auditorium, let's just take a minute, quiet our hearts, and ask God, invite Him to actually speak to us about these principles this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we surrender this time right now that we have deliberately set aside to be here. And we give it to You and we ask that You would use it to speak to us and teach us. Teach us through Your Word. Cause it to come alive. And You do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're inviting that activity in our life, asking that You would guide us and teach us and lead us. And perhaps, Father, even this afternoon or tomorrow, You'll use these principles to show us how to speak into someone else's life. But first of all, we want to put ourselves in the place where we're willing to surrender our attitudes and adjust accordingly. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you travel to Washington, D.C. today and you make your way to the Supreme Court building, you will find something etched in stone at the very pinnacle of the Supreme Court. Let me put this image on the screen for you. What you see is Moses holding the Ten Commandments. And he's flanked by other philosophers, such as Confucius is on one side of him, but at the very pinnacle at the top of the Supreme Court building, our nation has chosen to etch in stone an image of Moses and the Ten Commandments. For this reason, the commands of God have served as a foundation for law and justice for much of the populated Western world for millennia. And so we chose to put it in stone. The question we would ask ourselves is this, is it possible that what was previously revered by generations could become insignificant to future generations. Could future generations say, of what use is that? Those laws, those are so antiquated. They seem anti-cultural, to which I would put an exclamation point on it because, yeah, they are anti-cultural. They are antique, but that doesn't mean they've gone out of order, order. So we have to ask ourselves, what is actually the purpose behind these laws? That's what I want to explore with you this morning by transporting back 3,500 years. If we go back 3,500 years in time, we'd find ourselves standing at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And we would be surrounded by a really, really large crowd, hear this, a large crowd of theologically immature individuals. And that's not meant to be an insult. These individuals don't know what they don't know. They're fresh out of slavery. They've come out of a highly pagan society in Egypt, very polytheistic, meaning multiple gods. 
And that really, really large crowd that's, crowd that's gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, they don't know what they don't know about God. One of the most obvious things they don't know about God is His majesty and His holiness and that He's the one true God. They're completely new to those basics. So if you stood among that crowd that morning at the base of Mount Sinai, you'd hear a massive voice echoing off the canyon walls, as I showed you last week, a magnificent sound and light show. And then that magnificent voice begins to speak, and Exodus 20 verse 1 says this, then God spoke all these words, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And as if the phenomenal shaking of the ground and the lightning and the fire and the thunder and the smoke and the darkness enveloping the mountain doesn't already capture all of your focus, then that voice that begins to thunder speaks ten very specific commands. Look with me at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol, verse 5. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Ten commands. Obviously, you notice if you've read them before that I compressed them down and gave you the bulk of what they mean. I would encourage you later today to go back and read the full breadth of the commands Ten commands spoken directly in his own voice. And those who hear it that day find it so terrifying, it's beyond their capacity to endure. We ended last week with me showing you how Moses reacted to what he saw because it's described in the book of Hebrews. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews 12, 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. You might remember that I linked that with a Greek word. It's in your notes this morning, ekphobos, and it means literally to be scared out of your wits. So that's what Moses is saying about himself. I was so afraid. I was scared out of my wits. Now, the sound and light show aside, the thundering voice aside, so monumental are these foundational structures of the law that they have shaped the very fabric of society ever since they were given. But on the surface, they seem incredibly simple. So simple, there's only 10 of them, one for each finger on your hand. And they're not that hard to remember. You can actually recite them within one minute. So the Bible refers to them as 10 words. Any student of the Bible knows that they are not as simple as they appear, that there's much more going on here. When these words are studied very carefully, they reveal amazing depth. Matter of fact, so profound in what they reveal, they reveal God and they reveal us. 
so profound, we're only going to be able to touch two of them this morning and just kind of scratch the surface of just those two. Now, before we get into the two I'm going to show you, it's very crucial that you understand that God did not give His laws to save anyone. It is impossible to be saved by the keeping of the law. God says that in His own word, Galatians 2.16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And even if someone could be justified in that way, we're terrible at keeping them. So we understand these kind of appear antiquated. People in the church and outside the church would say, why have them? If they can't be fully kept and they don't provide justification, aren't they kind of antiquated? Well, there's three primary reasons I want you to see before we look at the two I'm going to give you as a sample. Here's the three primary reasons why God gave the commandments. Number one, first and foremost, to reveal God's glory and God's greatness. Look at Deuteronomy 5. He wrote them, this is Moses speaking, by the way, he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. You said, behold, the, behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. So the people got it that day. God's glory is on display. God's greatness is on display. Here's the second reason, to reveal humanity's sin. Scripture says this in Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And here's number three, and this is the biggest one. It prepares us for Jesus. Look with me at this statement from Galatians 3. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now the basic rules of understanding the Ten Commandments they're applied to a principle, and the principle is this. You have to look at both sides of the law. In other words, called the law of the opposites. The rule of interpretation when you come to the Ten Commandments is this. Every commandment has both a negative and a positive side to it. So where one side, something is forbidden, on the flip side of it, it has a positive responsibility. Now, people tend to think of the Ten Commandments this way. They think of them as a list of don'ts mostly because it's associated with this statement, thou shalt not, and so they think of it as a list of don'ts, but there's a list of do's that go with it. If you interpret them properly, there's a flip side to every command. So this law of opposites, you know what it does? It makes the Ten Commandments twice as hard to keep because you've got to do both sides. Think, think of the first law that God gave. You will not have any other gods before me. So there's that negative side. You've got to dismiss anything else in your life. But on the positive side, you've got to make God supreme Lord of your life. See, there's two sides to that component. Stay away from false religion and exalt Him as the one true God, as the supreme Lord. Ultimately, as you heard me say in the very beginning, the, the commandments are a mirror in the sense that it exposes sin. It's like a physical mirror on our life. Now, I'm guessing this morning that probably 100% of us in this auditorium, probably 100% of the people online, although I'm not totally convinced of that part, I guess 100% of the people in this auditorium, though, this morning looked in a mirror before they came to church. If not, somebody in your family probably said, you better look in the mirror. So we check ourselves. Why? Because a mirror reveals things. 
It shows us our flaws. It shows us our strengths. It shows us how dirty we are. But there's things that the mirror cannot do. A mirror reveals our flaws, but a mirror cannot fix it. To fix it actually requires action. Let me take you to what James wrote in James chapter 1. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Many people are not familiar with that. And James wrote the book of James, and he said this in his statement in verse 22. Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but there it is, an actual effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So let me give you these two examples of these commands that we can drill down into. First of all, it's been accurately noted the very first four commands talk about our relationship to God. Look with me at this and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Look on the screen. Verse 3, you'll have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you'll not make for yourself an idol. Verse 5, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. See, those first four, they're all about you to God, your relationship with Him. So the first four teach us about loving God and the remaining six teach us about loving each other. It's all about relationship, meaning... The last six are foundational because the relationship they focus on actually begins with the most foundational of all relationships. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Now that's pretty appropriate for Mother's Day, right? It's almost as though I planned it. Catch what just happened. The first four are all about relationship to God. The next six are about relationship to each other, and God chooses to start the relationship commandments by talking about the most foundational relationship, our relationship to our parents. So the fifth command is foundational because among all human relationships, it establishes first and foremost, if we're going to honor God well, if we're going to be in relationship with Him well in this human realm that we're in, it begins by respecting the God-established authority. This is the way verse 12 actually reads. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So the very first word that it starts out with, this word honor, it's a very heavy word, literally. In your notes you see it's the Hebrew word kabod. And it means to make something very weighty to make it heavy in your life, to promote it to such a degree it has impact. Well, the exact same word is used in the Old Testament of God's glory and God's majesty. When we're told that God is made weighty in our life, God uses that exact same word and attaches it to the relationship with parents. So to give your parents the weight that their position holds, this God-given authority that they have, God says you need to Honor them to the degree that you respect them and you value them as gifts from God because God forbids showing any disrespect whatsoever towards parents. So if parents are going to be weighty in your life, that means they're not going to be treated lightly as though the fifth command doesn't matter whatsoever. 
Very interestingly, Paul notes this command in Ephesians when he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says, pay attention, church. He says, notice that that fifth command, it's actually a command that's attached with a promise. It's the first command that's attached with a promise. Why a promise attached to it? Because God knows it is really, really hard for you and I to submit and to obey authorities above us because we're fallen. We naturally want to rebel. And so God attaches a promise to it because it's much easier to obey when there's a reward at the end of the obedience. And in this case, he says the fifth command comes with the promise of long life. Now, if you hear this properly, this promise actually can be called a national promise. Specifically, God promised them long life in the land. What's the context? Well, Israel is about to enter the promised land, or so they hope. So they're headed towards the land of Canaan. God says, when you get to the promised land, you want long life in the land? You're going to honor your parents. It helps to know that when the Bible talks about long life and living long, it's not specifically individually talking about biological life. Rather, it's talking about an abundance of life. That's a Hebrew phrase that's talking about fullness in your life when it says live long in the land. How do I understand that historically? When the nation of Israel abandoned honoring their parents, it was the trigger that caused the downfall of the nation. And they were hauled off into Babylonian captivity, and they lost long life in their land. God said, you want long life in your land? Honor your parents. He told them to keep all the commands. But when they stopped doing that, it became the trigger and the breakdown of the family ensued. Ezekiel writes about that in chapter 22. And that in turn prevented long life in the land and the nation collapsed. So here's a, an additional truth to add on to it, to bring it into our day and age. Because we are fallen, it is still very, very hard to honor our parents. But rather than me saying that from the platform here, let me choose an extra biblical source to speak into it. Somebody who's not actually biblical, but historical, and he writes about this very issue. Look with me on the screen. Youth today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, no respect for older people, and talk nonsense when they should work. Young people do not stand up any longer when adults enter the room. They contradict their parents, talk too much in company, guzzle their food, lay their legs on the table, and tyrannize their elders. Look at who said that. 400 B.C. Now, in the 9 o'clock service, unfortunately, I accidentally said they lay their eggs on the table. And it took a little while for people to drink in the fact that that's Socrates that said that. Here's why I point this out. It didn't start with us. It didn't start in our era. It shouldn't surprise us, actually, that he describes what young people are like in his era because it describes what we have always been like. Every generation thinks the upcoming generation is the one that's the worst ever. But the reality is this. The reason God commands this is because it doesn't come natural to us. See, God wouldn't make it one of the commands if that was an easy thing for us to do because He knows it's not, and in our fallen nature especially, it's not. God commands it because it's counter-cultural to what we would want to do naturally. 
So in the United States of America, most historians believe that a really significant shift took place during the 1960s. Here in our country and in much of the Western world, it's labeled as the decade of anti-establishment. Unlike previous generations going before it, young people actually in the 60s surfaced as anti-business, anti-government, anti-military, anti-school. But of all the institutions that came under attack, the most significant attack was the attack on the family. Anne Gottlieb wrote a great book in the 1980s, and she really captured well what was going on. But I wanted you to see her perspective by putting her quote on the screen. This is from her book, Do You Believe in Magic? We might not have been able to tear down the state, but the family was closer. We could get our hands on it. And we believed that the family was the foundation of the state as well as the collective state of mind. We truly believed that the family had to be torn apart to free love, which alone could heal the damage done when the atom was split to release energy. And the first step was to tear ourselves free from our parents. Anne's analysis is incredibly accurate and it's incredibly terrifying. Notice what she did. She noticed, she noticed the, the close connection between the family and the state. And the reason she calls that out is because good government begins at home. The home is the first form of government that God instituted. He put it in place. So Annie's point was this. If you go on to read her book, she said, the way to destroy a nation, destroy a family. You take the family's legs out from underneath the structure of the family, you're going to bring down a nation. And the way that children destroy the family is to defy the parents and not respect them. And the parents' guilt in that role is allowing them to do it. So we all play a role in it. So we, we notice specifically this command includes both fathers and mothers. Honor your father and your mother. And the Bible is really, really clear that where both parents are present in the home structure, that if the dad is a believer, he's supposed to have the unique responsibility of actually spiritual leadership within the home. Yet, even though that's true, this never suggests that mom deserves less honor in the home. Look at the way that it's worded in the Bible. Proverbs 6.20, my son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. See, equal authority within the home. And Leviticus, which is really unusual, I want you to see the structure of this. Leviticus mentions the mom first. Each of you must respect his mother and his father. In the ancient world, to list the female in the superior position before the male, it was unheard of. That the author of Scripture actually put it in that order means there's equal responsibility there. God's command is that the sons and the daughters would give mothers and fathers equal respect for this crucial reason. Both parents have a God-given responsibility to teach their children how to know God. And so God put that structure in place. Of all the ways that children can most honor their parents is by listening to their parents in forms of what they say about God, giving them godly respect. So interestingly, linked with that is the book of Ephesians in which Paul in chapter 6 says, a repeat of the fifth commandment. He says, children, obey your parents, but then he immediately qualifies it with, in the Lord. Look with me on the screen at this, Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Meaning this, 
Parents are to be shown honor, but nowhere is their word to become an adversary of God's word. So that's why Paul links that. Obey your parents who are in the Lord. Now, you might be in this place where you would have to say, well, it's too late. My parents have passed. They're gone. I can't honor them. They're no longer part of my life. In that particular case, if you have a parent who has passed out of your life, I'm here to tell you this morning, you can still honor them by speaking highly of them and giving them a legacy among their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Speak highly of them even if they've passed on. And if you can't speak highly of them, don't speak. Better not to say anything. But what if your parents are not part of your life? Maybe socially you've just separated because of a conflict in the relationships. I'm here to tell you also that it is not too late for you to work towards restoration. God's grace and God's mercy will work through you if you're a Christ follower. You just have to take really small steps. Now, I recognize that discussing God's plan for the family can really bring a lot of disappointment and can dishearten individuals who never had a good family background. But first of all, we'd recognize God is gracious, right, church? God is gracious, and He adopted us as orphans into the best family of all, the family of God. So look what Scripture says about this, Psalm 2710, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. That's a fantastic promise from God. Now, let me just touch briefly on the 10th one, on the 10th commandment. I told you we're going to use two examples. Here's the second one, and it reads this way in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, coveting, if you're not familiar with the word, is craving. If you use it in work this week or in the school place, people are going to know right away you've been to church this week because it's a churchy word, right? You, you try and use it in a sentence this week and somebody's going to say, oh, you've been to church because you don't find that word anyplace else in society. Think of it this way, coveting is craving something. This is the way John McKay, who's a theologian, summed it up. It's a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. Now, notice very quickly, it does not say, do not covet. It goes on to give a list of the things that you should not covet. See, it would make no sense to not covet anything because you're supposed to covet good things. I covet the love of my family. I covet the relationship with my God. We, we have things in our life that we would covet, things we do desire, but this commandment lists things that are off limits, things that belong to somebody else, and it says their spouses, their servants, their animals, all these things that belong to your neighbor. So it's not some, simply wanting something we don't have, it's wanting something that someone else has. And because coveting is the sin of desire, it makes this particular command different than all the other commands. There's a reason God made it number 10 and put it at the end of the list. A lot of people treat it as a throwaway command. They they give it very little attention. I want you to give it a superior position. It's different than all the rest because it stems from inside. It bubbles up from who you are, which means it requires getting a hold of your thought life. See, there's something very insidious about coveting, and it goes all the way back to the garden. 
When Eve reached for the fruit on the tree, Scripture is very specific in saying she desired it. She coveted the thing that was off limits, the very thing that God told her she couldn't have, and she reaches for it. It's not because she admires it as a piece of fruit, but because Satan brings it as a temptation, saying, there's something you don't have. Would you like to have it? You can have it. So Eve takes what is not hers to gain something which she is not intended to have. And ever since then, we've become really, really good at repeating the process. And a good place to see an example of this is to just go into the children's wing of the church and walk down the hallway and look where the toddlers are playing, and you will see coveting in little munchkins. <laughs> a child is not as polite as an adult because this really is aroused in them when they see another toddler playing with a toy that they want. What will they do? They'll walk over and bonk them on the head and take it and walk away. That's coveting. It's also stealing, breaking a lot of the commands here. So we understand how these things are interrelated. James again wrote about this, James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. See, this is an insidious one, and it is very, very devious because, and I would say church people and non-church people are alike in this, most people fail to recognize it in their own life. And the reason for it is because we tend to think of sins, the big sins, as being outward actions. So God gave us this inward one because consequently, we tend to think of ourselves in a safe place. We look at the list of the commands and say, I've never built an idol. I've never shoplifted. I've never murdered anyone. But by the time you get down to number 10, you tend to check out and say, eh, it's not a big deal. God says it is a big deal, and that's why He ends it with those, because the law is designed to reveal. It's designed like a mirror to show what sin really looks like. So this 10th commandment, we find within it that God requires inward as well as outward obedience. Martin Luther wrote this back in the 1500s about this very thing. He said, this last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. Do you know it's that last one that hooked Paul? Paul completely outed himself in Romans chapter 7 and said, that's me. I am all over that one. This particular law, it reveals my inner man and it is ugly because it's a mirror of my soul. Look with me at Romans 7, verse 7. I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Why does he use the word knowing? Because knowing reflects relationship. I won't go into the nuances with you of the Greek language, but the deliberate use of the word know here is for this reason. You cannot know something if it's not part of your world. And Paul's saying, it's true of me. 
I've known this. This is part of my life. I have coveted things. So when humans are placed under a law, we find ourselves at odds with the lawgiver. And it's only after a rule is put in place do we want what it forbids. There's a reason for the phrase that stolen fruit is sweet. Evidence of that? There's a reason why police officers in the state of Florida have to have radar guns because even little old ladies who are in retirement years still have a lead foot. We don't get better as we age. We just tend to repeat the same process. And if you see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass, what do you want to do? Right? Except for my wife. She's a a rule follower. I tend to not be. So I tend to push the boundary. I'm a rebel at heart. I recognize it. If we see a sign, we want to push against the sign. Earlier, what I said was the commands are a mirror, and the the mirror reveals and exposes sin. It reveals my human nature. And what it really does is it shows just how dirty I am. But the problem with that mirror is that mirror can't cleanse me. Only Jesus can do that. I heard like five amens on that one. We, We recognize it to be true, though, don't we, church? Only Jesus can bring that cleansing. So it is really significant that Paul chooses the most internal of the Ten Commandments to illustrate his own personal struggle because the battle with sin is absolutely internal and only the internal power of the Holy Spirit can transform us from a sinful heart to a heart that God takes as His own. That's what happens when God's Spirit invades your life. So the role of the law, the purpose of the law is to make us aware of guilt and the need for forgiveness. If someone engages you in conversation about the Ten Commandments someday, just remember that. Why do we have those things? They seem so anti-culture. Well, they drive us to Jesus. That's the whole answer for the reason. Last quote, I promise you, wrapping this thing up. Charles Hodge lived in the 1800s, really skilled theologian. He wrote this. The law, although it cannot secure justification, performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. It enlightens conscience, which we should not otherwise have recognized as sins. It arouses sin, increasing its power and making it both in itself and in our consciousness exceedingly sinful. It therefore produces that state of mind which is necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. You hope this is so important to understand. If you've heard nothing else that I communicated this morning, you want to hear this. The ultimate purpose of the Ten Commands is to drive us to Jesus. That's why we have them. Scripture says this in Galatians 3. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So I check this against where I'm at, and this is what I recognize. I hope you see it the same way. Because God loves us so much, God so loved the world that He gave the Ten Commandments. I know you thought I was going to say John 3.16. Yes, He gave us His one and only Son. 
God loves us so much, He gave us the commands of God. Why? Specifically, so that He could show us how far short of the glory of God we actually are. Now, I need to clarify for you a great lie that is typically attached to the behavior with the Ten Commandments. And this great lie traverses the entire planet. It is consistent with all false teaching. Here's the false belief that goes with it. Humans can make themselves acceptable to God if we just keep the rules. If we cross all the T's, if we dot all the I's, human nature wants to believe that we can be good enough to God if we just do enough good things. If I perform enough good deeds, if I give away enough money, I can probably tip the scales in my favor. God says that's hogwash. The the fail of that is the ridiculous impossibility of this issue. How many good things do you have to do to stand before a holy God? There's no list because there isn't a list big enough. There isn't a list because God says it isn't by the list, it isn't by the works, it's this issue, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. That's the truth of God's Word. If you're new to this information this morning, perhaps you've never heard these things before. What you've heard this morning means this. It means that nothing stands between you and a saving relationship with God except your sin. And you might say, well, that's a pretty big one, isn't it? That's a big deal. My sin, I know, I get it. But the good news is that Jesus came to deal with that very issue. He came to take away your sin and give you a completely new beginning. So Galatians 3.13, to close this out, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. I am so grateful that my salvation is not dependent upon my performance. It's dependent upon God's provision, and that's in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul in this auditorium and of those who are part of the broadcast right now. I do ask that your blessing would rest heavy on us for having spent time in your word and understanding better who you are and your call upon us. We know, Father, that your word reveals, it's a mirror, and it reveals things that we do not like. But in response, God, we would ask that you would allow us, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, to adjust and adapt and press on towards the high calling of Christ Jesus. That we would actually walk and talk and act like him. It would have such an impact on your society. God, I'm asking for the supernatural. I'm asking for the power of the Holy Spirit, which you've given us, that we would represent Jesus well this week. And we ask for that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. One thing before I let you go. Um, This afternoon, we have provided the Commons Church from Okemos to use our building this afternoon because their building is under some construction, and they couldn't have their Mother's Day service this morning. So they're going to come here and use our building about 4 o'clock today. What we're going to ask you to do is if there's any trash around you, would you pick it up and take it with you out? It'll make it easier for our facilities team. 
Thanks for helping. Have a great week, New Hope.